0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios. Hi, Ira here. A lot of you have said, hey, Ira, we like the podcast, but sometimes we just want to
1: listen to one story at a time, and we hear you. So we're going to try something new, a topic or two a day spread out through Monday through Science Friday.
2: Have a listen. Kenya is having a massive boom for geothermal energy. Just how big of a deal is this?
0: It can power the rest of the continent of Africa if harnessed completely, yes. So it's it's huge.
2: It's Thursday, October twelfth, but every day is Science Friday. I'm sci fi producer Kathleen Davis. Kenya is seated right on the split of the African continental plate. This means there are a ton of hydrothermal vents, which are perfect for harnessing geothermal energy. This renewable energy is really ramping up in Kenya. A bit later, guest host Flora Lichtman will explore this story. But first, we're going to head to Louisiana, where a saltwater wedge is hitting coastal towns.
3: Today, we're talking about a saltwater wedge. I know it sounds like a menu item at Sweetgreen, but it's actually a natural phenomenon. Seawater from the Gulf of Mexico is slowly creeping up the Mississippi River, and this is making waves for some Louisiana residents. This salty slurry can contaminate drinking water. So how are cities preparing and what does this mean for people living on the river? Here to tell us more is my guest, Hallie Parker, Coastal Desk reporter for WWNO Public Radio in New Orleans, Louisiana. Welcome back to Science Friday. Hi, Flora. What is the science behind a saltwater wedge? Like, why does it happen?
1: Yeah, okay. So, there's a couple things going on here. Um, you might actually be surprised to learn that the bottom of the Mississippi River sits below sea level throughout its entire path in Louisiana. So that means that the Gulf of Mexico can actually creep up if given the chance. And usually we don't have a wedge because the force of the fresh water flowing down the Mississippi River actively pushes against the Gulf of Mexico um, to keep it back at the mouth of the river. That's kind of like a barrier mo- for the most part. But we're in the middle of a drought, so not a lot of rain has been falling. And that means there's less water flowing down the Mississippi River. So we lose that barrier. And it leaves an opening for the denser salt water of the Gulf of Mexico to encroach up the river underneath the fresh water that's still flowing downstream and increase the salinity as it moves upriver.
3: How often do these saltwater wedges happen? Is it unusual?
1: Not necessarily. Like in general, this saltwater wedge is, like you mentioned, like this natural phenomenon. Um and historically, it's happened on a cycle, like once in a decade. But this year is different. Why? In what way? So there's a few things. Like, this is the second straight year that this saltwater wedge has formed, breaking from past trends. Like, last year it didn't stick around that long, and it stayed closer to the mouth of the river, isolated to the lower end of this parish that's south of New Orleans called Plaquemines Parish. And so last year's wedge was normal, so to speak. But two back-to-back years with historic droughts and little rainfall forecasted in the coming months means that this year's saltwater wedge might extend farther upriver and threaten drinking water of almost a million people in the greater New Orleans area. That happened one time back in 1988 just for historical context, but the wedge only made it this far for a few days before retreating, but this has the possibility of sticking around for a lot longer.
3: Wow, a million people. So how how does the wedge affect drinking water?
1: So this is an issue because the Mississippi River is literally the source for drinking water for this region. So that's where the water treatment plants are literally sucking in the water that's then pumping to people's taps after treatment. So if the Mississippi River gets saltier, then our tap water gets saltier, too.
3: How are people preparing? How are cities preparing?
1: Yeah, so preparation really depends on population size and how much water each parish needs. Like for some of the smaller plants, their plan is to get fresh water from farther upriver shipped down in barges to blend with the water they're pulling from the river um, if the saltwater wedge happens to reach them. Those smaller plants are also renting this equipment called reverse osmosis purification units, which is a mouthful, and that can remove the salt from the water with a process called desalination. Um, But, you know, the bigger plants for areas like New Orleans and surrounding suburbs really need more water than those options can provide. So local officials are looking to rapidly build pipelines that will draw millions of gallons of fresh water from a point farther upriver, similar to how those barges are working. Um, The focus has really been on making sure that the amount of salt in the water stays low, both for people's health and other reasons. Wow. Wow. Have you heard from residents? Are are people concerned about this? Yeah, so really, I've been getting a lot of questions. There's just a lot of fear and anxiety about what could happen, especially since there's still so much uncertainty about just how bad this water emergency could be. And we won't have a lot of answers until the salt water actually gets up here, if it does, and that unknown can be scary. People want to know how to prepare.
3: Does it impact residents in any other way besides their drinking water?
1: Yeah, so salt water actually speeds up the corrosion to metal, and that can affect pipelines throughout cities. Um, so that's a huge concern. But another concern is also people's appliances, like washing machines, air conditioning, dishwashers. All of that can be damaged, and in Blackman's Parish, they already have been. I went down there last week and talked to a fishing guide named Jamie Taylor. Um, he works out of a community called Venice, and he said it's been really bad.
0: If you drive up and down the road, you're going to see hot water heaters sitting by the road because people have had to replace them.
1: And this stuff can be expensive to fix. So those residents that have been affected are looking for help with money to replace them. And residents who haven't been affected want to know how they can avoid the problem in the first place. But that's another thing that we don't have all the answers
3: to yet. How do, th- how do these wedges go away?
1: Yeah. So it all comes down to rain pretty much. Um, We're not expecting much down here in the next few months. So we're really waiting on rain to fall up in the upper Mississippi River Valley, the Ohio River Valley, and then make its way downstream and increase the flow of the Mississippi River so it's able to push that salt water back to where it came from in the Gulf of Mexico.
3: Right now, the projections for the Wedge's whereabouts last until the end of October. Could it actually last longer than that?
1: Yeah, actually, the Army Corps of Engineers has warned local officials to just be prepared for this saltwater to actually stick around for up to 90 days. That's like three months, so almost in January. So we could be dealing with this for a pretty long time.
3: Oh, wow. Are these saltwater wedges linked to climate change? I mean, if it's about drought, are people worried we're going to see more of them in the future?
1: Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, The researchers that I've spoke to have said that climate change is one of the factors leading to this saltwater wedge being so bad this year. Because climate change is known to make extreme weather, like droughts, worse, we could potentially expect this to happen more often than it has in the past. Now, the researchers I've talked to have cautioned against thinking about this incident as like a new normal. Like it's not something we would necessarily see every year, but it is something that we could see happen more often than in the past than on that decadal cycle. So that means that local officials need to start thinking about long term adaptation, especially since this will probably happen again.
3: That's all we have time for. I'd like to thank my guest, Hallie Parker, coastal desk reporter for WWNO Public Radio in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks, Flora. At Radio Lab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry.
3: But but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories—stories stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs.
1: <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers.
3: And hopefully make you see the world anew.
1: Radio Lab adventures on the edge of what we think we know.
3: Wherever you get your podcasts. For the rest of the hour, we're heading to East Africa, where the region's geology is powering a renewable energy boom. Below Kenya, deep underground, the African continental plate is splitting in two. That continental cleave creates hydrothermal vents, and these vents are ripe for harnessing geothermal energy. So as a reminder, geothermal is a renewable form of energy. Hot water bubbles up from deep underground. When it comes to the surface, it turns to steam. That steam spins a turbine connected to a generator and poof, electricity. And Kenya is producing a lot of it. Half of Kenya's energy production is from geothermal plants, and that amount is growing. My next guest reported extensively about this for Science News. Jeffrey Kamati is a freelance science journalist based in Nairobi, Kenya. Welcome to Science Friday.
0: Thank you for having me.
3: Jeffrey, when did Kenya start investing in geothermal energy? Was the country ahead of the curve?
0: Yeah, so uh, compared to uh, most of the world or in Africa, it it was uh, very much ahead of the curve. The country started exploring uh, its geothermal resources in the 1950s.
3: Is that because of its sort of specific geology?
0: Yeah, so the geology of the country favors geothermal exploration. The heat is much uh, closer to the surface compared to uh, most of the region or Africa. So it is much uh, less expensive to explore the heat resource compared to other places.
3: What do the geothermal plants look like?
0: They are comprised of a number of you know, pipes that are coming from the geothermal wells away from the plant uh, some distance away, where the, the steam and the water is harvested and then pumped through a series of pipes to the power plant where the turbines are, which are then used to, uh, you know, turn the turbine to generate electricity.
3: What is the potential of this energy source? We said in the intro that half of Kenya's energy production comes from geothermal plants. But how much power could Kenya theoretically produce using geothermal energy?
0: Kenya has been estimated to have uh, 10,000 megawatts of uh, geothermal energy. And uh, currently, uh, it produces uh, less than uh, 10% of this potential. So you can see the potential is, is uh, very, very big. And as uh, the country continues to uh, to expand uh, its geothermal energy production, there is a lot of potential for utilizing this uh, energy source.
3: Is 10,000 megawatts a lot?
0: It's quite a lot. It can power the rest of the continent of Africa. If harnessed what? completely. Yes. So it's it's huge.
3: It could power the whole continent of Africa? Yes. Just the geothermal potential in Kenya alone could power all of Africa.
0: Yeah. So uh, the 10,000 uh, megawatts is, uh, is quite a big, big energy uh, source. So. If it can be utilized to its uh, fullest potential, then uh, it can be a very big deal uh, in terms of energy production uh, in Kenya and uh, Africa.
3: The continental rift that is sort of prime for tapping into geothermal energy, d- how far does that stretch? Are other African countries sort of getting on the geothermal train?
0: Yeah, so the rift extends uh, to a distance of more than 6,000 kilometers. So it, um, passes through 10 countries in Africa, from uh, up north in North Africa to uh, down south uh, in Mo- Mozambique.
3: You you explain in your reporting that more than 40 percent of Africa's population lacks access to electricity. Do people think that geothermal could be a solution?
0: That's what uh, the experts are saying, that uh, geothermal energy has the potential of bringing The the majority of the population online when it comes to access to electricity, especially considering uh, the fact that very little of this uh, potential has been uh, tapped. So, uh, the potential to bring the vast majority of the population uh, is there.
3: This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. What are the barriers to opening new plants?
0: So, there is the cost implication of Getting this resource, it's very expensive to drill a well and, uh, you know, connect it to a power plant or to build a new power plant. So it's very, very costly. And uh, the advantage that Kenya has is that uh, these heat sources are uh, much closer to the Earth's surface uh, compared to other parts of the world.
3: Got it. I mean, even with the heat sources close to the surface, the upfront costs, are they still more expensive for geothermal even in Kenya, than, say, fossil fuels?
0: You know, to drill a single well uh, will cost around uh, $6 million. And uh, to build a power plant with a capacity of 165 megawatts, that would be around uh, $300 uh, million. So it's very, very expensive indeed. But uh, that's the upfront uh, cost. But uh, in the long run, it's much, much cheaper than these other energy sources.
3: Because once you have the well, it basically just runs
0: yeah yeah that's exactly right because uh energy production is 24 hours a day uh, unless uh, there is an issue with maintaining the power plant for example which cannot be said of uh, these other energy sources like uh, hydro or wind or solar so that's the major advantage of uh, you know utilizing this uh, energy resource and it doesn't run out no, it does not run out. It's, it's, it's there. It's there 24 hours a day.
3: <laughs> 24 hours a day and you're not going to just like use it all up. Um, <laughs> given the upfront costs, where does the money come from for new plants? Is the government investing, private industry?
0: So the government is heavily involved when it comes to investing in the geothermal exploration in Kenya. And uh, other partners also are involved, like the World Bank and other private, uh, you know, entities as well.
3: You spoke to a lot of people in the course of your reporting. What is the long-term hope for the future of geothermal in in East Africa?
0: So the hope is to attract as many uh, investors to come and uh, utilize this energy resource. The other challenge is that, uh, you know, the capacity to utilize this energy in Kenya is very, Mm -hmm. very low compared to other places. Uh, we do not have uh, electric trains, for example. So there have been uh, plans uh, to uh, come and set up, for example, green manufacturing parks in Olkaria, where this uh, geothermal is being produced, and uh, industries are being encouraged to uh, to utilize this energy. So the potential is is very very huge,
3: and people are excited about it. Is that your sense?
0: Exactly. For example, there has been um, this movement of removing carbon dioxide from uh, the atmosphere uh, using these new technologies of the future. I'm sure you've read about uh, direct air capture, for example. So there is a company that is coming in and uh, is trying to see how it can utilize this um, green energy resource uh, to remove atmospheric carbon and store it underground uh, in in the form of rocks. So this is uh, still uh, at the initial stages. the potential for uh, the utilization of this energy is, is, is big.
3: Is this a point of pride for Kenyans to be at the forefront of renewable energy?
0: Yeah, as a, as a, as a leader in uh, geothermal exploration and expertise in the region, Kenya is very, very, very proud. You can see, for example, other countries are questing, uh, you know, the expertise from the country to uh, help them explore there are geothermal resources in Djibouti, in um, Ethiopia, in uh, the neighboring countries of Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, and as far south as uh, Zambia. So Kenya Kenya is very, very proud um, to be at the forefront of, of uh, geothermal energy development in, um, in Africa.
3: That's all we have time for. I'd like to thank my guest. Jeffrey Kamadi is a freelance science journalist based in Nairobi, Kenya. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
3: One more thing. Have you heard? In just a few weeks, Ira and the Sci-Fi team will be heading to Chicago. If you live nearby, come on down for a live recording of your favorite radio show at the Studebaker Theater on Sunday, October 29th. We've got some great stories lined up about behavioral science. Your behavior should be to go get your tickets at ScienceFriday.com slash Chicago. That's ScienceFriday.com slash Chicago.
2: That's all for today. A lot of folks helped make the show this week, including Nahima Ahmed, Santiago Flores, Rasha Aridi, Phyllis Samers, Robin Kazmer, and many more. On Friday, we'll dive into a roundup of the biggest science news of this week, including the upcoming solar eclipse. I'm Kathleen Davis. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you tomorrow on Science Friday.